Welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. The Biden administration has extended temporary protected status for Venezuelans. TPS protects immigrants from deportation during humanitarian crises or natural disasters, and this special status allows them to work in the U.S. Those protections are now extended for another 18 months. That relief is still not available for Venezuelans who arrived in the U.S. more recently, so for those who arrived after March 8, 2021, to be exact. Earlier today, we spoke with WLRN's America's editor, Tim Paget. This conversation was recorded before the Biden administration's decision came down. What does TPS mean for Venezuelans right now? Uh, it means a lot because, as we've been seeing over this past year, the regime there that we were that they were escaping has become more entrenched. I mean, you'll remember three years ago uh, when we, the United States, um, decided not to recognize the authoritarian socialist president there, Nicolas Maduro, as its legitimate president, and to instead recognize the opposition leader there, Juan Guaido, as the legitimate president. There was this feeling that the Maduro regime, that its days were numbered, that simply didn't happen. And that uh, disastrous authoritarian regime is, as I said, looks more entrenched in power now than ever. And that makes uh, protections like TPS for Venezuelans here in the United States seem more urgent and important. You know, as we await this decision, I mean, I, I want to go back and also remind myself of how that application and reapplication process works. Right. TPS, Temporary Protected uh, uh, it, it Protective um, Service, it, it gives the, the refugees, in, in this case Venezuelans, but this is also extended to so many other nationalities, Haitians, Hondurans, et cetera, um, it, it designates them for 18 months of temporary protected status. Uh, and that 18 months can be renewed, uh, which it has been, for example, for Haitians for, for, for many years now. And that's what they're hoping will happen uh, now uh, so that come September, the Venezuelans who are here can have another 18 month extension uh, for, um, uh, for their temporary protected status here. The problem of course is that as, as this goes on and on, uh, the, the temporary and temporary protected status begins to lose its meaning, and that's where the controversy comes in. Yeah, and I want to get to that in a minute, but, you know, over the years, you've been on the program and talked to us about how Venezuela, what's been happening in Venezuela, and we've watched how it's the, it's just been degrading, this, this, the, the entire system and life for a lot of people, and a lot of people trying to get out. Right now, What's happening in Venezuela? Has anything changed? Um, the, the economy has shown some slight improvement, but that's because Maduro has suddenly uh, realized that his dogmatic socialist uh, economic policies were, were the source of the ruin of, of the country. A ruin, uh, you know, we should add that has driven a fifth of Venezuela's 30 million population out of the country as refugees into places like Colombia, all over South America and here. Um, but still the economy is in ruins. And what, what we've been seeing in Venezuela over the past five or six years is what economists are calling the worst humanitarian crisis in modern South American history. So it's no wonder then that we're seeing Venezuelans uh, making their way, not just to other countries in South America, but deciding to come here um, through Mexico. Uh, last year, we started seeing a record number of Venezuelans coming over the U.S. southern border. 
if Biden extends this TPS, uh, you know, first of all, are we talking, what happens, are we talking about the the Venezuelans who are living here or because we were looking at what an estimated 250,000 who have arrived since the protection was granted? Is it for just them? Is it for anyone who's coming later? Well, here's another one of the sticking points. When President Biden extended TPS to Venezuelans here back in March of 2021, last year, about as many as 300,000 Venezuelans were thought to be eligible who were here by that date. If you came to, to the United States after that date, you weren't eligible for TPS. One of the things that a lot of the Venezuelan community leaders and politicians here who represent them are asking the Biden administration to do, in addition to extending TPS for those 300,000 who are already here, is extend TPS to the 250,000 Venezuelans who arrived in roughly the six months or so after that TPS was extended to about, say, let's say December of 2021. So that would add another quarter million of of Venezuelans to the TPS rolls if if the Biden administration were were to uh, decide to do that. Do you think there's a correlation? Because if if he does pass it, do you think that in, you know, basically invites, it's, it's an incentive for more to, to come? That is the big sticking point, as I said. Last year, for example, when we saw that influx of Venezuelans coming over the southern border, many of them were coming after Biden had already extended TPS to Venezuelans here in March of 2021. What did we see in April? We saw thousands of Venezuelans leaving Venezuela and coming to the U.S. southern border because they didn't read the fine print of TPS. They thought that because Biden had given TPS to Venezuelans who were here before March of 2021, well, that meant everyone mm. gets gets TPS. And 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 again, it, it was like a magnet for Venezuelans to come uh, to, to the U.S. southern border, uh, a lot of hardships. And there is that problem. If we extend TPS and if we give it you know, to even more people, will that simply encourage more Venezuelans to throng to the U.S. southern border and worsen the, you know, the refugee and migrant crisis there. And I think this is also part of Senator Marco Rubio's argument. He's not in favor of it because he thinks it will incentivize people uh, south of the border. Um, Politically, if this happens, what does it mean for the Biden administration? But also we're in a reelection for the governor here in Florida. What would that mean for that election? Well, yeah, yeah, you're you're very right to point out the politics of this because it's not just a a, a migrant crisis uh, issue that the Biden administration could be looking at if, if 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 it takes this step. But if you don't take this step, how does that perhaps alienate the Venezuelan community here, which turned out to be a, a rather important voting block in term uh, in the 2020 election in in terms of Trump former President Trump garnering a lot more of the Latino vote in Florida and especially South Florida than was expected. So the Biden administration is also trying to weigh if we don't extend TPS to Venezuelans, how is that going to hurt us uh, perhaps in the upcoming midterm elections in November with South Florida Venezuelans and the broader Latino community? And also just to mention, too, uh, and I'd, be, I'd slipped my mind that, you know, not only Senator Rubio, again, it, it, not in favor of this because he thinks it'll trigger more people coming. But it's notable that he's been outspoken in favor of TPS yes. since Trump left. Um, yes. I mean, the country right now, we're dealing with inflation, uh, lack of resources, uh, you know, all of these challenges and, and people talking about a possible recession. 
Is this a good time for this? Again, I, I, these are the considerations that the Biden administration has, has to be taking into account. Now, one of the, 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 the silver linings of TPS that many people point to is that along with the residency status that they get here, they also get work permits. Okay, so it makes it much easier for them to get jobs here if they, if they, uh, compared to if they didn't have TPS. So what that does, it, it, it makes it easier for them to become less of an economic burden on, on the United States economy uh, than if they were just simply you know, refugees waiting out uh, whatever is going to happen in Venezuela. Uh, but again, you, you bring up a, a good point. That's one of the reasons that Trump was, was said he was always trying to eliminate TPS because he felt um, that the people from countries like Haiti and Honduras who were here for such a long period under protected status were becoming a burden. Uh, but then others would, they were arguing, no, they, they simply be, they became uh, more embedded uh, in the community here and became much more co uh, contributing uh, 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 local residents to our communities. Again, I'm talking with WLRN's America's editor, Tim Padgett, and discussing, again, the Biden administration expected today to decide on whether or not to extend temporary protected status, TPS, to Venezuelans. Uh, and, of course, we'll keep you updated on that as we get the information. Uh, follow his reporting on this story, on this issue, at, uh, on our social media, WLRN Sundial. So, Tim, if, uh, if TPS ends or it's not extended, what options do these Venezuelans have? You've got more than a quarter of a million people, essentially, who are going to have to start thinking about how they adjust their migration, their immigration status, uh, from undocumented, essentially, to finding out how they become documented residents, how they can get on a path to, to legal residency here. That, that's really their only uh, option. Or, uh, you know, uh, making the case for political asylum, which is what many of them had done when they came here before TPS was extended to them, they, they a lot of them had, uh, a, you know, strong cases that they were politically persecuted, for example, back in Venezuela by the uh, Maduro regime. So you'll, you'll see a lot of them having to scramble to, as I said, adjust their immigration statuses to either legal residency or to get asylum uh, status. Is there any chance of deportation? They'd face deportation? Yes. Okay. Yes. Those, those for, for example, who cannot adjust their, their uh, legal residency status or to legal resident status, or those who, who fail in their bid to get political asylum here, yes, they would be facing a possible deportation. You've been saying this throughout this conversation, that we have to remember it's temporary. That's what TPS is, temporary. And right. we saw this with Haitians who were living yes. here under TPS. They, they kept getting extended. And you have folks that were living here for years. They bought homes. They started businesses. They had children. Is Congress working on any kind of long-term solution? They need to be. That This was one of the, the um, worst thought-out aspects of the original temporary protected status legislation. They did not bring enough foresight to the consideration that temporary could eventually become something more permanent. And so the longer uh, the, the TPS lasts for these migrant communities like, like Haitians, as you point out, the more embedded they get in the community and the more of a humanitarian, um, the more of a humanitarian uh, 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 
what's the word I'm price, looking for? I, mean, I think uh, more, yeah, more of a, a the more of a sort of a humanitarian crisis you you face when when you're suddenly thinking about well you know do these people then have to be deported back to Haiti or Honduras or wherever after they've been living here for say 15, 20 years and they've got homes and cars and, and jobs and families, you know, kids who were born here, et cetera. This was one of the, one of the least thought out aspects of the TPS legislation. And you would think because of the problems that we're dealing with now, you would think Congress would be working out a fix to that. Something that does take that better into consideration than so far we haven't seen. That. And I mean, this, I mean, it came up, you know, with with the issue of Haiti, sending people back to Haiti when the country still was not stable. Um, exactly. You know, talking about Nicolas Maduro, so the U.S. doesn't recognize him as the legitimate president. They they see Juan Guaido, and yet they're talking to Nicolas Maduro. What? That's uh, a contradiction. What's going on? Well, uh, as I, as I pointed out earlier, the problem is Nicolas Maduro uh, turned out to be not such an easy guy to overthrow. Uh, he's very entrenched in power now. And so the reality is, um, if the United States or our allies want to be talking to Venezuela about things like oil, uh, like releasing U.S. or European prisoners who are in Venezuela, um, you still have to talk to Nicolas Maduro, despite the fact that we don't recognize him as Venezuela's legitimate president, because, uh, and, and they're quite right about this. He, he quote, won his 2018 re-election by, by uh, fraudulent uh, means, unconstitutional means. And uh, so that is why we recognize Juan Guaido, who under the Constitution uh, would be the legitimate head of state in Venezuela. And, and that's where things stand. All right. We're, again, we're going to keep following this story as we would wait to see what uh, the Biden administration is going to do. Again, on temporary protected status for Venezuelans. And, of course, uh, stay tuned throughout the program or through All Things Considered this afternoon. Uh, when that comes out, we will report it. I want to move to another big story in Latin America today. Um, it's the anniversary of the historic protests in Cuba against the regime in power. Those protests, as we remember, they were unprecedented, uh, made international headlines, and they were followed by harsh crackdowns by the Cuban government and a mass exodus that we're still seeing today of Cubans. Um, remind us briefly, Tim, of the movement behind those protests. What started it? Well, it was anger that had been developing for years, and it was really brought to a boil in large part by the pandemic, which simply made Cuba's economic collapse uh, even deeper. And it made the daily struggle to find food and medicine and other basic goods uh, even more harrowing. And so you had that, but then you also had a real current in the country that had started earlier in the year with a, an artist movement called San Isidro that had convinced most Cubans that it was time for them to really come out and start demanding uh, more free speech rights and rights of that nature. Um, so it all bubbled up last summer on July 11th, and you saw this, as you said, unprecedented wave of thousands of Cubans all over the island coming out to the streets to march uh, for reforms, but also an end to this dictatorship uh, that they've been living uh, with. And they were chanting things like, we're not afraid anymore. As it, it, it was something the Cuban regime in its 60 years of power, uh, this communist regime, had never seen, or had never confronted before did that, uh, with, did that with the Cuban people. Did that movement have actual leadership? Not really. Uh, what the, the leadership, we, we've often said the leadership it had was social media. 
um, and, 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 and this protest anthem that had been recorded by Cuban rappers earlier in the years, which, as you know, Patria y Vida, a Homeland and Life, which is a sort of a sarcastic, angry poke at the communist regime's rather dismal slogan, uh, Patria o Muerte, uh, Homeland or Death. And that became the rallying cry, really, for Cubans. And so when they finally had it, um, they got on social media and using uh, using uh, you know shout outs like Patria Vida, they rallied each other out into the streets. And that social media finesse that they demonstrated was really sort of what you know that's what you would call the leadership that 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 those protests had. And I mean, so we saw that, and then we saw the crackdown by the government, a lot of people arrested and jailed. Um, I mean, has the momentum gone? Do people, do you think people are, what are they doing in Cuba today remembering this? I think sadly the momentum has gone, uh, unfortunately, because the Cuban regime showed its its true colors very quickly, swiftly in the wake of the protests. They rounded up and arrested more than a thousand protesters in, in, the, in the years since. They've handed just uh, ridiculously long prison sentences to even teenagers, you know, up to 25 years or more. Um, and so you've got those, you know, you've got about almost 300 people languishing in prison right now in Cuba with those sentences. So the Cuban regime um, really cracked down in ways that, um, you know, I, I think even its worst critics didn't anticipate and human rights groups across the world have, are, are really condemning the Cuban regime's response to this. And now you ask, what has been the, the response of the, the, the Cubans on the island to this? Um, their response has been largely to just leave the island. We're seeing an, a, a record number of Cubans, the sort of numbers of Cubans that we haven't seen in, in decades, um, coming uh, to Florida, for example, on boat, but to the Florida coast, or now most of them coming up uh, by land through Mexico. We've got a record number of Cubans, uh, you know, more than 150,000 that have shown up on the U.S. southern border in, in the past six months or so. So we don't expect any other form of demonstration either in Cuba or here in South Florida today or this week. Uh, well, in, in here in Florida, yes. I mean, today we're seeing a, a number of uh, commemoration events by the Cuban exile community here, I think, culminating in a march on uh, Southwest 8th Street or Calle Ocho in Little Havana this evening. So you, you, you are seeing a lot of commemoration of the anniversary of these protests last summer here in the United States. There will also be a uh, protest rally outside uh, the, the Cuban embassy, I believe, in Washington, D.C. today. The, the problem is we probably won't be seeing much of a commemoration by Cubans on the island itself because the Cuban regime is waiting to really crack down hard on that if it happens. Let me finish with this. Uh, you know, we saw the Obama administration trying to open up conversations with Cuba and he visited the island nation and then Trump came in and reversed a lot of things. What has Biden been doing? Biden has been going very cautiously. I, he's he doesn't want to go. He wants to go back to sort of engagement with Cuba, but only in the sense that it would help us help, uh, for example, uh, what's called cuenta propistas, the, the fledgling private entrepreneurs, uh, or or would help whatever civil society, anything that doesn't sort of smack of helping the regime. Um, and so I think he wants to go back to the to the policy of Obama engagement, but with a little harder hand than Obama used. And 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 but again, he's being very cautious. 
Follow everything that's going on in Latin America. Just follow Tim Padgett at WLRN.org. Tim, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lewis. Well, still to come, some South Florida doctors argue lawmakers without medical expertise shouldn't be making laws around abortion. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Just want to make a program note that tomorrow at this time, we're going to be airing NPR special coverage of the January 6th hearings. It's scheduled to start at 1 p.m. Sundial will return Wednesday at this time. But we still got this program to continue. Florida's new state law banning most abortions after 15 weeks leaves health care providers with fewer options when treating pregnant patients. Some South Florida physicians are frustrated that state legislators are making abortion laws without medical expertise. They argue these policies could harm patients and providers throughout the state. WLRN's healthcare reporter Veronica Zaragovia brings us this story. Dr. Cecilia Grande in South Miami says Florida lawmakers should know about all the things that can go wrong with a pregnancy. All the scenarios she's seen happen over more than two decades as an obstetrics gynecologist. Like when a patient suffers an early rupture of membranes, when their water breaks too soon. They're 18 weeks or 19 weeks. You know that this pregnancy cannot continue. You know that the mom, if you don't act, is going to get an infection. And that infection may have her many days in the hospital. She might lose her uterus. She might even lose her life. A doctor would induce labor in this case, and the fetus may not survive. Grande worries that that might now be considered an illegal abortion in Florida. The state's new law bans abortions after 15 weeks with some exceptions, like if the patient could die. The legislation doesn't explain how imminent that danger needs to be. We're having people that are politicians and have absolutely no qualifications to make these determinations impose for patients to continue pregnancies. One in 50 pregnancies is ectopic. That means the embryo starts growing outside the uterus, usually in a fallopian tube. These pregnancies never end in a birth. They can cause internal bleeding or even death without quick intervention. Do we wait until that ectopic pregnancy ruptures? Because now we are afraid that somebody is going to accuse us. So this creates a big moral crisis for the doctors who took an oath that they were not going to do any harm. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists wrote in a statement that state lawmakers are taking it upon themselves to define complex medical concepts without reference to medical evidence. Dr. Grande says her medical expertise guides her decisions, not politics or religion, even though she's Catholic and doesn't perform abortions herself. Regardless of what your religious position is, if you have a patient who comes to your office and they want to seek a termination of pregnancy for whatever reason, medical, personal, even if you're not a provider of of abortions, you point the patient in the right direction. I couldn't inhale a full breath without wincing. I couldn't stand up straight. I was hunched over from pain. Allison Vicent didn't know she was pregnant in 2019. She started to have cramps and light bleeding. Within a few days, the pain became intolerable. 
At a hospital in Margate, an ultrasound showed her abdominal cavity was filled with blood, possibly from a ruptured fallopian tube. So at that point, the choice for what to do next was sort of out of our hands. It kind of became a, oh, you haven't eaten in the last few hours, right? Cool. All right, we need to get you into the OR right now. From there, I found out, in fact, it was in my tube. The tube had ruptured. She was roughly eight weeks pregnant. The only treatment for a rupture is emergency surgery to remove the pregnancy. I was now 25 years old with one fallopian tube. You know, does my other tube work correctly? Is there a blockage that's like... One of the most traumatic things I think I've ever been through. She and her husband wanted a baby. With one fallopian tube, Vicent later did give birth to a healthy daughter. Rachel lives in the Florida Keys. In 2016, she went to get an ultrasound in Coral Gables to find out why she was feeling pain on her side near her hip. I was prepared to hear that I had a cyst, that I had cancer, that something horrible was going on inside of my body, I was not prepared to be told I was pregnant. Rachel asked us not to use her last name. You get judged. She got an abortion at about 10 weeks. I did what I was supposed to do. I was on birth control. I've never been off of it. How dare my body betray me in this way? Women, trans men, and non-binary people in Florida who get pregnant now have much tighter timing to make these decisions. 15 weeks instead of 24 under the new law. A 24-hour waiting period went into effect earlier this year, and a minor needs parental consent or a judge to agree. The feeling of helplessness was just overwhelming. Other than voting, I don't know what else women can do at this point. That's what Dr. Cecilia Grande is now advising her patients to do. Are you registered? And then I tell them, I'm not telling you who to vote for, but if you don't like how things are, go out and vote. Listen to the chanting. We want to be proud. Use your voices. Like I said, everybody here is here because they care. At an abortion rights rally in Wynwood, the evening Roe versus Wade was overturned. Some protesters were wearing T-shirts and jean shorts and others green scrubs and white coats. I was so happy when Katrina told me that this was happening and somewhere to go and, and feel a sense of community. Dr. Sarah Stumbar was there. She and Dr. Katrina Seraldo say they felt compelled to protest not just because of how the Supreme Court decision would affect them as women, but as physicians. We're telling people that they need to consider what state they're going in to train. Stumbar says she's telling medical school students that Florida might not be the right place to do a residency. State law now forbids most abortions after 15 weeks. Here in Florida, you won't be able to get later training for second trimester procedures if that's what you're looking for. Florida is already facing a shortage of doctors and nurses. A lot of people left their jobs because COVID-19 care was so tough. Dr. Seraldo says now she worries about losing more healthcare colleagues because of the cost of living and these new government restrictions on their jobs. It's too expensive to live here. People are not going to come here to go to medical school, go into more debts, right? We're going to have a major crisis. Healthcare workers are leaving the field in droves because we're burnt out, unsupported. We have people who are not physicians, like these people on the Supreme Court telling us what is right or wrong. 
Ceraldo says she knows what's right medically as a doctor. Now she feels like lawmakers in Tallahassee are tying her hands. She held up a white poster that had, in capital purple letters, Keep your bands out of my exam room. That was WLRN South Care reporter Veronica Zaragovia. WLRN's Kate Payne also contributed reporting to this story. Last week, Sundal spoke with Dr. Cecilia Grande, the gynecologist from the beginning of the story. And you can find a link to that full conversation and more of the latest news about abortion access in South Florida. It's on our social media at WLRN Sundial. And by the way, don't forget that you could stay in touch with us and tell us what you think of stories like this. Maybe you have something to share about this topic or any topic. You could do it by joining the Sundial Text Club. Just send us the word JOIN to 786-677-0767. Again, that's 786-677-0767. It's also a great way for you to give us some ideas for future topics. Well, still to come, we continue our recent conversations about going solar in South Florida. The committee investigating the January 6th insurrection resumes public hearings. Join us for live coverage and analysis of the 7th hearing tomorrow from NPR News. Starting at 1 p.m. on the air and the WLRN web stream. Tonight on WLRN-TV, we kick off a new season of drama in England's most murderous county, where, ironically, paradise and perdition collide. Midsummer is known for its rolling hills, small charming villages, quaint customs, and bizarre murders. In the season premiere, the annual Paramount Dance Extravaganza arrives at Midsummer, bringing deep-running feuds, passions, and deadly ambitions behind the sequins and smiles. Watch The Point of Balance on Midsummer Murders, tonight at 9 on WLRN-TV. Volo Foundation reminds you that meat and dairy account for nearly 15% of the world's greenhouse gases every year. By reducing their consumption, we are reducing global warming emissions. Volo Foundation exists to accelerate change. VoloFoundation.org. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. Florida is the sunshine state, but as a state, we're not taking advantage of the resource. According to the Public Service Commission, there are roughly 90,000 homes in Florida that are run by solar. That's out of 9.5 million homes, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Why aren't there more solar panels? We spoke with Miami Herald environment reporter Alex Harris about that. It's part of a recent series, Sundial's been exploring solar energy. Alex, I wondered how many homeowners you've talked to who went solar, because I want to know what they're saying about it. Are they happy? So I feel like most people I've talked to with solar are happy because they uh, everything has sort of lived up to the promises they heard when they initially made that decision to put solar on their rooftops. They have lower power bills, they have more confidence knowing that their energy comes from a cleaner source. And uh, sometimes they can even sell that power back to the grid and it it lowers the costs of uh, getting their money back for their solar installation. You know, we think about like what we heard from David Lewin earlier and the thing that he reminded people is, it's a long-term investment. Do people get the sense like they understand that, like this isn't gonna just, magically flip overnight that this is a long-term investment you're making? 
Right. So I feel like that's often the case for folks who put it on single family homes that they own. Um, I, we heard David talk about getting a $30,000 value instantly added to his house. And that's great. And it doesn't count where he lives in Broward County uh, against his property tax, which for him is just instant equity. Um, but for others, you know, sometimes you think, okay, wow, this is a lot of money to spend up front, much like impact windows. It's one of those things that you, you kind of see the benefits of slowly over time. Although, you know, with impact windows, maybe you get a break on your property uh, insurance, um, not so much for solar panels. But I think maybe sometimes there's a little frustration from folks who really wish they could pay it off faster and go straight into the, uh, you know, paying back their investment as fast as they possibly can. What what are like two or three myths about solar panels and solar uh, installations that you keep hearing over and over? It's really frustrating. I think something I often hear from folks is that they didn't realize that to get the best amount of energy and have the most efficient solar panel array, like how they lay it out on your roof, sometimes you have to cut down trees. And that can be a deal breaker for folks because, you know, if you have those big, old, mature oaks and beautiful trees in your yard, they shade your windows, they actually bring your power bill down, and they're beautiful. Um, and I think folks sometimes are sad for the idea that they might have to lose a tree that they've grown up with for years or decades just so they can have the most optimal solar array. And the quote that they initially give you is usually based on what is the most optimal solar array. And if you decide, I really wanna keep that tree, I wanna move the panels somewhere else on my roof, that can mean that you're not exactly getting uh, as much power as you originally were quoted for. But sometimes folks can work around it. Sometimes you can have panels that are more mobile, um, but that, that can be a consideration. And then the other thing I think folks uh, don't often know is you have to have a roof in pretty good condition because those panels are a little extra weight and they um, are kind of adding on. So you might need to double check your roof. Is it in tip top shape? Do you need a new one? Do you need to patch something up? Um, and though I know building codes have changed a little bit now for in some cities and counties around here, you have to have a solar ready roof when you refix it. You have to have those tie-ins, you have to have everything you need. Uh, but yeah, I think people sometimes think it's easier than it is. There's a couple more considerations than maybe they think about when they look at their neighbor's roof and see a bunch of beautiful shiny solar panels on it. Yeah, and, and David had mentioned that too. The trees are an issue, but also what, I guess, the direction your house is pointed in and how much you know so, sun you're going to be getting on those panels. Um, I wanted to go to some of our listeners' comments. We, we heard from a Samster Sm, uh, Smithy on Twitter. Uh, he says, quote, Why isn't rooftop solar required on every parking structure, big box store, and office building, etc.? Is that discussed? I mean, is that, I guess the question would be, is that a government question or is that just the business? The business has to decide if they want to put solar, but why don't we see more of that? That's a really good question because I think every study we've seen from experts has shown that if we really used exactly like that listener said, if we used up all that available space we have in big box retail and shopping centers and parking garages, we could really, really do a number on the amount of solar power we have in this state, the Sunshine State. Um, but it's ultimately the government can't force businesses to do that. Uh, we've had a lot of preemption laws from Tallahassee, which basically says to uh, cities and counties and towns, you can't force businesses to do things. You can't force people to choose what kind of power they want, um, which is you know, meant to be more of a free market, do whatever you like, but unfortunately has the effect of uh, encouraging people to hold on to fossil fuels like natural gas or whatever alternate power sources. Um, but we have seen a lot of big companies, both as, you know, a source of making better uh, ethical decisions and, and, you know, going with what their consumers want, like Walmart are investing in solar in their big box retail. 
And we're also seeing, you know, it just makes economic sense for a lot of these companies. Um, but it does require more of an upfront investment. And often that's not what you see in um, businesses. Businesses rarely make these decisions, uh, never make these decisions just because it sounds like a good idea. All businesses make their decisions because they're either forced to or because it makes economic sense for them. And as the price of solar drops, we see more of this happening. Um, but you as a consumer can always go to your companies uh, that you like to go to, or you can go to the businesses that you work for or the companies you own, and you can make that choice and you can push to ask for more solar. I don't know if you'd ever seen this. I just, I was thinking about, you know, from reading that tweet, uh, when I was in Las Vegas, I saw it at, at a, a, a college campus. They have, um, you know, the center part of the campus. You know, basically, it's just this, you know, you know, uh, center park in between all the buildings. They built a solar array as a roof. And so you're still outside, but you're getting the shade from these big solar panels. But they're solar panels collecting energy. They also built them in the parking lot. So now you have shade for your car, but they're solar panels collecting energy. I don't know if you've ever seen anything like that anywhere in your travels. Yeah, they are really cool. Actually, FIU has one on its campus out by Sweetwater, um, sort of near some of the engineering buildings. And it's awesome. It's Like you said, double duty. You are keeping those cars cool, which as Floridians, we know, is more important to have a shaded parking spot than a close parking spot. But you're also generating electricity that you can use to power your building. You can use to power the electric car chargers, maybe even, that you have under that shaded parking area. There's just so many reasons that installing solar in these places just makes sense. Uh, just economically and also quality of life. It's kind of, uh, why don't we do it more often is the question. Right. <laughs> so Alex, how much of the energy in South Florida are we producing from renewables? I mean, not just from FPL, but houses and businesses, how much of it is solar? Right. So the amount of energy that's renewable differs uh, because, you know, different amounts of solar panels in certain places, different amounts of whatever your natural local power plant is creating. Uh, but in Miami-Dade County, we have about 27% of our power from renewable sources, the vast majority of which is nuclear from Turkey Point, the FPL plant down there in Homestead. Um, but the county has done some sort of analysis and figured out that if we install a lot more solar, um, we could get that number up maybe 10% higher by 2030. Uh, but really, it's kind of a low number, maybe five, 7% of our uh, power in Miami-Dade County right now is solar. And most of it, as I said, is nuclear. All right. We heard from Shannon, and I want to talk about government now. Shannon in Key West says, our local government is late bringing up solar power energy. We are behind in alternative energy resources. Besides solar, there's real opportunity for wind and tide current energy. That's uh, talking about hydro. But let's talk about government because you've reported on this with Miami-Dade and they had a plan to cut their emissions in half, I believe, by 2030. Right. So obviously, one of the most important things we can do to slow down the worst impacts of climate change is to stop releasing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And uh, that means Miami-Dade County needs to cut its emissions pretty severely by 2030 uh, so that it can, you know, help us with our fight against climate change. But it's kind of tough to do that in Miami-Dade County because that's because we're at the mercy of a monopoly utility that hasn't really made that full commitment uh, to meeting, to cutting its emissions at the same speed that Miami-Dade County wants to be at. And also because of the airport, uh, we count all of those airplane emissions as ours. And there's really not, the technology isn't there yet for a renewable energy or low energy or low carbon uh, fuel for airplanes yet. We're talking about solar energy, solar panels, solar installations. Again, a follow-up 
to the conversation we had last week. We're talking with Alex Harris, environment reporter for the Miami Herald. And you can learn more about this, these conversations that we've had over the last few weeks. Just go to WLRN.org, look up Sundial. Uh, didn't you report that that goal they have, the county has to cut by the, their emissions in half by 2030 is not possible? Yeah. And that's like I said, it's because of uh, airplanes and because of FPL. We actually aren't able to meet that goal with the work commitments everybody has right now. So even though that's something we need to do, we know that because of the United Nations, Nations reports on uh, climate and what we need to do as a nation, as a world to uh, lower our emissions so that we can try to keep global warming to a manageable level, um, we have sort of a deadline. 2030 has been gone around multiple times as we need to cut everything by that date. And to meet that uh, challenge set forth by the United Nations, uh, we need to cut our emissions in half by 2030. And Miami-Dade County, unfortunately, physically cannot do that with the way technology and utility companies are set up today. So, I mean, does that mean they have to accept failure or can they just readjust their goals? They could always readjust their goals down, but obviously this is sort of an aspiration that you know, would make it a livable planet for everyone for a little bit longer. So we would, I think the ideal is not to adjust the expectations down. The ideal would be to work with new technology. And that's really the hope. So the one half of it is airplanes. And there's so many people working so hard to come up with low carbon fuels. That means that you know, you're not spending a ton of carbon dioxide to take a plane from here to New York or to even come up with electric airplanes or uh, electric blimps. I saw a really interesting study from, uh, or not a study, report from Spain that an airline there had actually bought electric blimps to move for short-term travel. So there are technologies that are coming that maybe between now and 2030 could help us cut some of those uh, emissions. And then the other thing is, of course, Florida Power and Light, our monopoly utility down here. Uh, originally, when Miami-Dade County released this plan, they had no commitment to reach 100% clean energy, which was really crucial for Miami-Dade County because we rely most of our energy from that utility. And if they are not using renewable sources, then you know we can't really get to where we need to be. But since then, uh, FPL has actually released its first ever plan to get there. So now there's a, a better chance and, and more of commitment from our utility to meet that same goal that Miami-Dade County is trying to reach. All right. First of all, get me a ticket on the blimp. I, I will go. I, I want to do that would sound great. But and, and I'm not being flippant when I say this, by the way. I mean, there's an opportunity if, if we put solar panels on top of the airport, considering how huge it is, would that offset or maybe I'm just swinging at the fences here for, for no reason? Every little thing helps. And like I said earlier, the county has figured out that if it installs, I think it's 850,000 kilowatts of solar um, in the next 10 years, we could increase our amount of energy, solar energy we create by 10%. And that's enough to power 110,000 homes a year. And every little bit of solar you add to the grid means you don't have to burn as much natural gas at your plant if you're FPL and means you don't have to, you know, use the coal from Georgia or whatever other fossil fuel systems we're using. So yeah, that if you put solar on the airport, that's one more thing that can help us meet that goal. Just saying, it's a huge airport. <laughs> Very big. Lots of room. There was, uh, the in 2018, the, the county did their solar feasibility study, and basically it was they were looking for, what was it, to look for properties and places they could put up solar installations. I wondered, did, have they tried? Have they, was that just to see where those properties were, or if they actually are trying to do this? You know, I thought it was just to see where things were, but they, they have actually started making the concrete steps to make that plan a reality. 
Uh, there's actually an upcoming project for a solar array and a battery backup, which is that important thing that gets you off grid when you need to, uh, at Gibson Plaza, which is an affordable senior housing uh, unit in Coconut Grove. Um, and this is a really important project because if you think about the tragedy that happened in Hollywood up in Broward after Hurricane Irma, where uh, so many folks weren't able to get the cooling they needed, some of those elderly folks and, and unfortunately uh, died from that heat. This is something the county is doing both, you know, to cut its emissions, but also to make some of these uh, affordable senior housing areas more livable and safer in the future. So they are working on that. And, and once they get that installed, the county is expected to save about $10,000 a year in energy costs with that new solar array for this one building. All right. Now, you mentioned the utilities. You mentioned FPL. So let's talk a little bit about this. How, again, how much power are they producing from renewables? I think I saw their portfolio. It's barely 10, 15 percent, if not less. It's not very much. Uh, statewide right now, solar specifically, uh, as of 2021, FPL gets about 4 percent of its energy from oh, solar panels. Less. Never mind. OK. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah, a lot more. Our renewables in Florida really are nuclear, um, which is a controversial decision to call that renewable or even clean energy. Uh, some environmentalists disagree, but the generic standard of renewable, if we're talking, is solar and nuclear in Florida. That makes up the vast majority of it. But um, there's really not much of a push to extend things like tidal or wind or any of those other things. So really, solar is the big push for Florida. And according to FPL's new um pledge that it's made to get to 100% clean energy by 2045, it wants to add 20 times more solar panels than it has right now. And I know from the conversations I've had with them, you know, their argument with nuclear is that obviously it doesn't have carbon emissions. But yes, there's the other side of that. It's we're dealing with radioactive material. Um, Tell me, let's remind people again of net metering, because, you know, I want to ask about how FPL approaches this issue. But net metering, again, works how? Like if I have solar panels, I'm selling energy to FPL? Yeah. So the way solar works um, is that, you know, obviously the sun is out and shinier in some parts of the day than at night. So you're creating more energy like around noon than you are around 6 a.m. or 9 p.m. So when you're creating all that extra energy in the middle of the day, it's more than you use because we mostly use more power early in the morning and late at night. We actually, it's kind of funny that the creation of power from solar is kind of the opposite of how we use energy in our society. So in the middle of the day, you are creating more energy than you're actually using. And net metering is the process of selling that back to the grid so that FPL can zip that out through the power lines from your house and give it to your neighbor who doesn't have solar so they can run their air conditioning in the middle of the day. And I'm going to take it they're not a big fan of this because they were trying to push a law to restrict this in the last session. Right. So the reason that utilities like FPL do not like net metering is currently the rates are set for they buy the energy from you at the same rate that they buy from any other utility. It's called the market rate, which is a great thing for homeowners because it means that you can make a pretty good amount back and you can pay off your solar panels faster, which makes it more affordable. And you can skip straight to the part where uh, you are just producing clean power that you already paid off five years ago. But if you are FPL, that's a lot of money. And the argument from utilities is, well, you're not paying to Uh, fix up the power lines. You're not paying to fix up our transformers. You're not paying the staff rates for uh, the line workers to go up after a hurricane and fix things up. So FPL wrote a bill that they passed in Tallahassee this year uh, to go ahead and cut that rate down over time to lower the price that they have to pay you to buy the solar that you're creating in the middle of the day. And the governor vetoed it. Um, Let me finish with this. In your reporting, in all your experience, 
What's holding us back from more renewable? Is it the cost? Is it government? Is it the utility? Or is there something else? Sort of a multiple choice answer there, because I think the utility really, I mean, we've seen SPL, it is against their business model to have a lot more rooftop solar. And there's not much, only 1% of Floridians have rooftop solar. So it is a small audience we're talking about here. And really, it's not in their business interest to have more of that. And they really do try to stand in front of it with bills in Tallahassee, with minimum rate bills that we talked about last week, all sorts of little small things to sort of make that less affordable. And also, you know, bureaucracy can be a pain. You could be more, you could incentivize it more. You could offer, you know, continue that tax credit. You could uh, make it easier for people to put them on their homes. You could have, uh, so your homeowner association doesn't fight you if you try to do it. There's so many ways that we could be making solar easier that would really help us transition to that clean energy future we absolutely need. Um, and really, I think the fault can be shared among a couple groups here. But, you know, if you have the opportunity and the money to do it, go for it. That was environment reporter Alex Harris for the Miami Herald. You know, again, share with us on Facebook or Twitter, you know, if you're considering going solar, maybe you just did. We want to know more about that process of finding the right company and what those upfront costs are like. And if you're satisfied, if you're happy with going solar. Again, look us up. Just look up WLRN Sundial. We keep hearing from a lot of you on our social media. Jeffrey wrote us, quote, we live in a condo without a place to plug in a car. We hope to take advantage of the Florida sun with an Aptera electric car with integrated solar panels, providing that company survives and produces their solar car. Let's hope so. We'll see. Again, we'd love to hear more from you on this on this topic. Well, that's our program for this Monday, July 11th. Katie Munoz is our lead producer. Leslie Ovalle is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. And Jessica Bakeman is our senior news editor. Peter G. Meritz is WLRN's vice president of radio. Don't forget the theme music for the program is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Balo at GoBalo.com. And if you missed any of the program today, listen to tonight. The rebroadcast is at 8 or download the podcast. If you prefer the podcast, don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear from you. Well, as I mentioned earlier, tomorrow at this time, we're going to be airing NPR special coverage of the January 6 hearings scheduled to start at 1. Sundial returns live on Wednesday at 1 o'clock. Don't forget, by the way, our Sundial Book Club. Are you a member? If you're not, don't forget, just go to Facebook, look up Sundial Book Club, ask to join. It is free. We are reading for the month of July the book The Everglades, River of Grass by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Find out more on the Facebook page. By the way, we're going to be doing something special for this one. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a story, maybe a little essay you want to write, or a poem about the Everglades, tell us that story. Share it with us on our Facebook page, again, under Sundial Book Club. I'm going to be posting a little poem of my own up there as well real soon. Again, look us up at uh, on Facebook, or you can email us, sundial at wlrnnews.org. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.